Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I'm an elder candidate here. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 18. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women and the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who, were, all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, so that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the, best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this, was, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken, taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave, gave gifts with royal generosity. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, John. 
These readings in Esther are going to be a little longer, you might have noticed, uh, but let's just uh, prepare for them, maybe read ahead of time, and if you would, please join me now as we pray and get ready to hear from God's Word. Father, we thank you for this book. Uh, we thank you that you have inspired it to be written. We thank you for the unique ways that it is designed to give us confidence in you, particularly in seasons when you seem distant or hard to see or know if you're there. God, we pray in, in many ways a season like that, that you would use the book of Esther to fortify us in our faith in your resurrected son, even when there are other powers that would tempt us to cling to them, to trust in them. God, show yourself faithful through this very unique book, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a time when the church was very, very powerful. In the fourth century, the emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And in doing that, he kind of turned Christianity into something of a cultural norm. It was eventually something that was just expected of everyone. And around this same time, much of the church's power was also centralized in bishops who had authority over entire regions, and then ultimately they were accountable to the pope, who was the bishop of Rome, and really from that point on, there was little distinction even between the church and the state. Uh, to be a member of the church meant to be a member of the community and vice versa. Uh, and for this reason, the church was responsible for building uh, grandiose basilicas that were covered in, in gold, and they had a role in the coronation of kings and other leaders and also in the waging of war. And this powerful centralized church really dominated the West for centuries, and it still exists today in some form in, in the Roman Catholic Church, although, of course, quite a bit has changed, especially since the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther, Martin Luther and other reformers severed ties with the Roman Catholic Church to recover what we believe is the, the true gospel, the good news that sinners are redeemed and justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a message we very much believe in and celebrate. But if you can imagine, this was not just a change in people's religious affiliation in the day. This has not just changed the way people identified themselves spiritually. Because of the church and the state being so entangled in the West, this Reformation flipped all of the power structures of the Western world on their head. And to this day, Europe is still not the same. It never will be the same. Now, it's not as though Christianity just died off within a few generations. It hasn't. Even still, of all world religions, even today, Christianity, without a doubt, still has the most influence in the West. But the church's power is no longer centralized in one institution. And this has led to a radically different situation. There are now many different traditions, different denominations and institutions. We, we often don't really work together, at least not in any official organizational ways. And some would say 
that this fragmenting of the church's power kind of marks the beginning of its end. Uh, This is one of the main reasons we're losing influence in the world, some might think. Uh, If we just stuck together and maintained this power, then we'd still be in charge. Maybe we wouldn't be dealing with these rapid changes in the culture. Maybe Christianity would still be respected in the public square and so on. And whether or not we think of church history in this way, many would like to see the church gaining more power and more influence in the world today. Whether it's through things like just bigger, more impressive congregations, uh, more real estate, uh, influential pastors with great reach in the world and the culture. But as we consider the story of God's people throughout Scripture, and particularly our relationship to power and influence in the world, I think we see a very different story. It is not as though God's people do best when they have great power or influence. In fact, if anything, it's just the opposite. Uh, We tend to flourish and multiply against all odds when we have little or no power. Because it turns out that is the perfect opportunity for a very different kind of power to be on display. And in all of Scripture, this book of Esther might be the most compelling example of this. If you're not familiar with the overarching story of the Bible, it will really help to know that the whole thing, from cover to cover, all 66 books, is the story of God and his people. It begins with God creating the very first two people, Adam and Eve, and telling them to be fruitful and to multiply people so that the whole world will be filled, the world he just created, will be filled with these sinless people who bear his image, who make his glory visible. But then these first two rebel against him. They try to live as their own gods rather than trusting and obeying the one true God. And by just the 11th chapter of Genesis and the the whole Bible, uh, instead of a world filled with sinless image-bearing people, rather, uh, we, we have a world filled with sinful, raging nations, these powerful kingdoms that wage war against each other. And so in just the very next chapter, chapter 12, God basically says, you know, I'd actually kind of like one of these nations and these kingdoms for myself. And he promises to raise up the descendants of an elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, and to turn their descendants into a great nation that he will then use to bless all these other nations. That right there, it really is the backdrop of the entire story of the Old Testament and even, and even the Bible. Uh, One generation after the next, God raises up his chosen offspring to carry on his chosen line. He delivers this growing family out of slavery in Egypt. He gives them the law at Mount Sinai. He guides them through the wilderness. He conquers their enemies and establishes them in the promised land until eventually they do become a great nation with an just beautiful uh, capital city there in Jerusalem with, with kings even, kings like David and kings like Solomon. In other words, it was working, or so it seemed. God was doing at he had, as he had promised long, long ago. His plan of redemption was unfolding largely through his people, the nation of Israel. But the book of Esther is not about all of that. The truth is, 
The full story is a bit more gritty and nuanced than the little recap I've just shared. Because in the midst of Israel's rise to power, especially during the height of their power, God's chosen people often resisted him. They often rebelled against him. They were often marked by all kinds of injustice and wickedness. And in some cases, they even forgot him. And it was not because God was distant or silent. He dwelt there among them in the temple where they worshiped. He had sent them prophets to warn them along the way, but nothing took. And so eventually the entire nation, and I want you to to make sure we understand this, the focus and the intended audience of the entire Old Testament, that nation, collapsed. First, the kingdom was divided. Then it was overthrown. Then God's people were scattered into exile among all these raging nations that God was supposed to use them to bless and to redeem. And that exile is the context and setting of the book of Esther. The events in this book all took place well after the fall of Israel, and the book itself was more than likely written well after those events even, looking back and reflecting on what takes place in the book. Uh, We don't know exactly who wrote the book or when, uh, but we can be sure it was written to God's covenant people after their great fall from power during a period of history in which they were not on the best of terms with God. They were not in a position of power or influence, and they were ultimately not sure how God's plan of redemption would progress, or if if it even would, as they thought it might. Now, one of the book's most unique and defining characteristics is that this is the only book in the entire Bible, if you can imagine, in which God is never even mentioned. Not once. He doesn't part any seas. He doesn't speak to us from heaven. No one even talks about him. But this is not a bug or a flaw in the book. In fact, it's, it's actually a feature of the book. It is, I trust, part of what God was intending to get done when he inspired this book to be written. One scholar puts it this way. She says, the events in this book are deliberately left uninterpreted by the divinely inspired author, resulting in, and I think this phrase is important, purposeful ambiguity. The book of Esther is spiritually ambiguous. It doesn't say much. And it's spiritually ambiguous on purpose. She continues, is God present or is he absent? From reading just Esther alone, we cannot be sure. This book is a canonical example of how ambiguous life and history would be if God had only acted but had not also spoken. In other words, this book is meant to speak to us It's meant to speak to God's people in very dark and difficult circumstances. In times when we might look back, for instance, with remorse and regret or disappointment because, man, we just, we blew it. Or in times when we look forward with a sense of dread or uncertainty 
or fear because we have just no clue what's going to happen here and it just doesn't seem like it's going to go well. You see, the book of Esther speaks to God's people in times when it seems like God is strangely absent and silent. And we are tempted to ask the question we've used as the subtitle for this series, are we still God's people? Or has this whole project, this whole concept of God's people been one big happy delusion all along? It's not uncommon for people to ask these very similar questions even today. Whether it's due to the crisis of abuse in church leadership or a long list of spiritual leaders who've had some other kind of moral failure or the growing confusion and division among churches that we thought were quite like-minded in the recent past or even just growing suspicion of all kinds of institutions, particularly religious ones. And in turn, this trend of so many people, quote-unquote, deconstructing their faith. People left and right abandoning the historical truth claims of Christianity, in some cases even apologizing for ever having believed them. For many reasons, many are beginning to wonder if theologically conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, evangelical churches like ours are going to make it. In this sense, we are in something like an exile of our own, if you will. A time when we, as God's people, are not in power. Our influence seems to be shrinking, not growing. And those with earthly power and influence don't really know what to do with us, increasingly. And often as we look around, we don't quite know how to honor God in a situation like this one either. In the stress and anxiety of this moment, it's tempting to wonder, are we still God's people? Or are we just misguided religious folks holding on to our happy delusions? Well, in our passage today, the author of Esther starts to point us toward an answer, and he does this by contrasting two very different kind of powers. First, We're going to see the grandiose power of King Ahasuerus. Now, if if, if they made a blockbuster film of the book of Esther, I'm convinced, uh, they would probably cast a big-name actress to play Esther, right? Someone like Anne Hathaway or Or, or like like a Gal Gadot, okay? And, of course, she would be plastered all over the trailers and all over the advertisements, But when you turned on the movie, she would actually be strangely absent from the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, and instead we'd be introduced to this powerful pagan king who was in the middle of throwing a grandiose feast. And we're meant to be struck by this king's just power and prestige in in multiple ways. He ruled over, it says, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. I mean, that's that's a large swath of the known world even at that time. And then, of course, all these lavish details about the 180-day feast he was throwing, which we'll talk about. But clearly, this was a powerful man with tons and tons of authority and influence. But there's also this kind of cynical edge to the way that the king is presented to us in the book. Now, historically, this was almost certainly the Persian king Xerxes 
that is actually being referred to. This name, Ahasuerus, was uh, the Hebrew rendering of that Persian name, Xerxes. But what's interesting about this is that the Hebrew name Ahasuerus sounds virtually identical to the Hebrew word for headache. <laughs> Chances are, as we read the book, we are supposed to see King Ahasuerus as King Headache. Almost as if the author wants us to kind of roll our eyes at him. Oh boy, this guy's clearly full of himself. And he was. If you look with me at verse 3, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. For many days, 180 days, King Headache knew that he was powerful and he loved it. Based on the timing of Xerxes' reign, it's actually incredibly likely that this feast was a preparation for an enormous military campaign that the Persians would later launch against the Greeks. In other words, it may likely be that King Headache is gathering all of his allies to woo them into waging war with him. And to convince them to fight by his side, he puts his power on display by making this just as lavish as possible. Again, there's white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of linens, silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. We got our couches on Wayfair. <laughs> right? Pavement made of precious stones. This is all one big grandiose display of the king's opulence and power. And chances are, to avoid any confusion or conflict with these leaders of these provinces, he went out of his way to say, notice, that drinking was, according to this edict, no compulsion. Uh, more than likely so that there would be no doubt that he didn't just bring them there and get them all drunk and kind of dupe them into going to war. No, 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 no. Everyone who went to war with him would go to war of their own accord. This may be evidence that this king was a master maneuverer and politician. Then there's this important little detail in verse 9. Queen Vashti, Ahasuerus' wife, also gave a feast for the women in the, place, in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So while he was sort of whining and dining the male leaders of these provinces, his wife, the queen, was entertaining the wives. And it is against that backdrop, I have to say, that the plot really starts to thicken here. Because when Ahasuerus calls for his wife so that he can show her off likely in a sexual way, she refuses to come and be shown off, and clearly this was a really, really big deal. She, she basically humiliates him in front of all of his most important allies and and this is where the, the real spiritual character of his power comes into focus. What does it say? It says he's enraged, right? He calls all of his closest advisors, seven men, to discuss what should be done. They speculate that if they don't write a decree, basically banishing Queen Vashti, well, then who knows, right? Maybe all the wives of Persia might start disrespecting their husbands in this way, right? Maybe a little insecurity there. Um, so they do... They banish Queen Vashti. They demand, even in this decree, that all wives respect their husbands, that those, those men should be the masters of their homes. And then they begin this year-long competition to find King Headache a new and better wife. 
which basically amounts to what I, I think seems a lot like an ancient pagan version of The Bachelor, <laughs> right? This was all clearly uh, an overreaction. Uh, the author is, is not commending this decree as though it was a good thing. Uh, and, and then they begin this year-long competition. But if anything, he's trying to show us, I think, that while this king may have immense and grandiose power, he was also, frankly, pretty insecure and, and an unstable man. The point here is that King Headache's power was, on one hand, hard to miss. He ruled vast territories with multitudes of people. His feast was lavish and luxurious. It was a very bad idea to cross him. And yet, on the other hand, his power was also fickle and fleeting. He's deeply insecure. He demands that people respect him even when he may not deserve it. He makes rash decisions with huge, sweeping implications. And then against the backdrop of this king and his grandiose power, we are introduced to another kind of power. When one of God's chosen people, a Jew, secretly enters and then wins this competition to become the king's wife and the next queen of Persia. Again, in the movie version, this would be when we first spot Gal Gadot, Esther, right, in the sea of beautiful women who are just falling over themselves to be the next queen. And it is through Esther that we are meant to see, part two, the understated power of God. Now, you may be wondering, what, what does this have to do with God's power if God isn't even mentioned? It's a good question. Uh, but there is a pretty clear answer to it. In some ways, it's actually the point, I think, of the passage. While the book never mentions God, it is clearly written for and about his covenant people. In, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, we are introduced to two Jews, Mordecai and Esther. And these two were basically cousins whose families had survived and lived through the exile, uh, and because Esther was orphaned, Mordecai, her cousin, basically adopted her in as if she were his daughter to care for her. And notice, though, in verse 10, it says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. In other words, Mordecai tells Esther, listen, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, which basically means don't tell anyone you're a descendant of Abraham from the Old Testament. Don't tell anyone you're a member of Yahweh's covenant people. This is, this is so big. We can't miss this. The fact that these two are Jews and that they tried to hide that from the Persians, this is basically the only reason this book has any business being included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, if it weren't for that detail, this would just be an interesting story of a woman becoming a queen. But go figure. Of all the beautiful women scattered throughout 127 provinces of the king, it was Esther, this Jewish refugee who pleased him most and became his wife. And as a result, one of God's chosen covenant people was now in a position of power in this pagan nation, a position that God will go on to use to powerfully protect and preserve his people while in exile. 
So this is so big. If we want to see God's power at work and on display in this book, we need to keep our eyes on Esther and Mordecai. Now, there's quite a bit of debate over whether or not Esther's involvement in this pagan episode of The Bachelor was actually a good thing. Um, The author doesn't really say one way or another. He just explains what happened without interpreting it. But as a general rule, a Jewish woman being intimate with an uncircumcised Gentile king who she is not married to is certainly not encouraged uh, throughout the scriptures. But it's probably not fruitful and certainly, I think, misses the point for us to weigh in on Esther's decision-making here, or Mordecai's. One scholar puts it this way. She says, It is natural to pass judgment on these two, whether positive or negative, but in doing so, we may miss an important point. This deliberate silence, the, the fact that the book doesn't interpret this for us, is part of the message. Regardless of their character, their motives, or the fidelity to God's law, the decisions Esther and Mordecai make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises that God made to his people long, long ago. In other words, the point here is not just did Esther do a good thing or did Esther do a bad thing. The point is either way, God is sovereignly working through their involvement in history to orchestrate his great purpose of redemption. The point is that God's power is present in this book even though it's never mentioned, it's just strikingly a different kind of power than the power of King Ahasuerus. There are no feasts thrown in honor of God. No one is forced to respect him or punished for disrespecting him. In fact, he's not even mentioned. And the truth is many without faith in God have read this book without seeing any reference to his power whatsoever. But church, we are meant to read this and be reminded that God's power may not seem grandiose, but it is great nonetheless. This is so important for us to remember, particularly when we're surrounded by a sinful world that boasts in many ways the same kind of grandiose power we see here from King Ahasuerus. God's power may not seem as real as the power of wealth or the power of government, or the power of culture, for instance. But one of the great points of this book is that it certainly is. Jesus himself actually taught us this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 32, where he says this. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Small little unassuming thing that a man took And sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, to most people, at first, the kingdom of God does not seem particularly grandiose. At first, to many, it may seem very small. And insignificant, but time will tell it's not. And this really shouldn't surprise us, right? Since, after all, we are the followers of a crucified king. 
I want you to picture Jesus hanging on his cross of all places and all times with a sign above his head, King of the Jews. It's one of the greatest ironies, I think, in the whole Bible. (laughs) This sign is without question meant to taunt and mock Jesus. Oh, Jews, you think you have a king that's going to compete with King Caesar? Here's how it's going to go for him. It's meant to tease even the Jews. Listen, I, I imagine you probably expected a bigger, more impressive king than this one. Didn't you? But ironically, this was the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen. And again, it's particularly important for us to remember this is how it works. When we are in exile, when we are not in a position of power or influence. And so with that in mind, here are just two questions we should consider this morning about our relationship with power while we are in exile. The first question is this. It's very simple. Do we believe that God is still powerful? Do we believe that he is still powerful even now? even today. Here I want to address just two different kinds of people who might be disillusioned uh, for two different reasons. Uh, First, I want to address those of you who are disillusioned by God's people. Uh, Maybe you look back on the recent history of his people, in our case the church, and you think, well, yeah, of of course we're in exile. (laughs) Look, we've just been blowing it for far too long. For some reason, about 40 years ago, we became obsessed with marketing and church growth. We stopped being clear about the doctrines we teach. We started sort of entertaining people. We grew these big, huge churches that accumulated all this power and influence. And then somehow, we have this flood now of abusive leaders who are all being exposed. And meanwhile, tons of people are conflating their American identity with their Christian identity as if the Second Amendment is like somehow the 11th commandment or something like this. And Christians seem to be retreating from the world in angry and self-righteous ways. They have little passion to reach or frankly even often talk with people who aren't just like them. And you might be tempted to think, well, listen, if these are God's people, then I'm about ready to give up on them too. It may be that some of you have very valid and pressing concerns about the church today. I can't possibly wade into each of them or even try to address them. Instead, I just want to ask, do you believe that God is still powerful? We may have blown a lot. There may be many ways we need to grow, even painful ways, without doubt. But do you really believe that God is redeeming his spiritual family by the power of his resurrected son? And do you still believe that he is powerful and capable of working even in this mess? Uh, The author of Esther wants to make sure you know he has done that in the past. This is a thing that he does, and he will do it again. Next, I want to address those of you who might be disillusioned by the world that we live in. The Persian Empire, if you will. 
Maybe you look around at what's happening today and you're just disgusted by all the opulence, the immorality, the distortion and rejection of God's word and God's ways. But if you're honest, you are a bit more fascinated by the dysfunction of this world than the power and the plans of God. Instead of praying, instead of discipling someone, Instead of growing in unity and love with people who are very different than you, people you have no business being related to unless it were for Christ, maybe you're more inclined to grumble and, if you're honest, kind of whine about the state of the world. Just look around, right? People don't even know what a man or a woman is anymore. No one seems to have any clue what a family is or how to build one, a healthy one. Of course, civilization's collapsing, right? People want government to fix all of their problems. Meanwhile, Congress is run by a bunch of senator headaches who have just no clue. It's corrupt. And don't even get me started about the public schools. The public schools, there's certainly no hope for these, right? Here again, it may be that you have very valid and pressing concerns about the world today. I can't possibly wade into each one or even try to address them. Instead, I just simply want to ask, do you believe that God is still powerful? Please don't hear me defending the state of the world. It is a mess to be sure, but do you really believe that God is redeeming a spiritual family by the power of his resurrected son? Do you believe that he is still powerful and capable of working in powerful ways, even in this, this exile, this mess. The author of Esther wants you also to be sure that you know he has done this before. This is very much a thing that he does, and he will do it again. Just watch. Church, even in exile, let's be marked by a deep and abiding confidence in God's power, It may not seem as grandiose like the powers of this world. He may even seem distant or silent, but we can be sure in every detail and in every day of our lives, he is working, and someday we will see just how powerful he's been all along. Next, I think we should also consider this final question, number two. Will we rely on his power or another kind? Let's just say that, yes, we really do believe God is powerful, but meanwhile, there are all these other kinds of power around us that seem really powerful. Uh, Social media seems powerful these days. Money seems powerful. Uh, The approval of others seems very powerful. Cultural pressures of all kinds, very powerful. The truth is, it's easier said than done to wait on this God and experience his kind of quiet, unassuming power throughout the scope of history, right? It's far more tempting to grab for some other kind of power to make sure that things go the way that we want. Now, this could really apply to any area of life, but men, I want to talk about what this means for us, particularly as husbands and fathers, These days, uh, some people interpret the book of Esther through the lens of modern feminism as if the most important thing about Esther is that she was a woman, not so much a Jew. Now, I think that largely misses the point of the book. I'm not suggesting we read it in that way. But there is also clearly something to be learned here uh, about how men and women ought to relate. 
Uh, we are unapologetically a complementarian church. You've not heard that big word before. What it means is basically we believe that God, very much on purpose, has created men in one way, and he's created women in another way. And there is certainly a shared humanity between them, but there are also distinctions and differences between them that are good, uh, that, that actually work together in a complementary way to honor him. And we believe this not just because of, of the culture we live in or the culture we want to live in, but because we see this design even presented to us in the pages of Scripture. We, just, we believe this is good for us, even though it's complicated. But there is a distinct spiritual quality to the kind of leadership we're called to as husbands and fathers. So, brothers, is our spiritual leadership of our family a gentle and loving reminder of God's care for them? Is our leadership gentle, patient, and understated like God's power is here in Esther? Or is it harsh and exacting and just a demanding example of how much we care about our power and how enraged we are when it is threatened or questioned by anyone? I think it's worth pointing out, I'm sure King Headache here believed in the difference between men and women. He clearly seemed to think that his wife and apparently all women should submit to him. But he is not being commended here as a shining example of godly male leadership. If anything, he's actually probably being mocked. Brothers, there is a way to lead our families that may not seem grandiose, but it is powerful nonetheless. We are to love our wives, our kids, as Christ loved the church there when he hung on that cross. We will fail at this, but let's allow this book to be a gentle nudge back to God's ways and not to our own. And finally, I want to speak just briefly to what this means for us as a church. What will it look like for us to rely on God's understated power rather than searching for some other sort of more tangible kind of power here and now? Paul tells us, I think, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, what you, so I want to, in other words, point out, Paul's basically saying, listen, I intentionally limited the, the, the scope of my focus. There were a million things I could have preached to you, tons of things I could have taught you. I decided not to teach you those many other things in order to preach this one message of Christ and him crucified. And now listen to why he did it that way. He says specifically, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in what? In the power of God. Church, we don't need more and more services we don't need an impressive addition to this new building we have. We don't need a compelling new way of doing church in order to experience God's power. What we need is a dogged commitment to preach and to live by the power of this gospel. 
the good news that on his cross and in his resurrection, Christ has dealt with our sins. He is our unexpected heavenly king who embodies this humble, quiet, and yet eternally great power of God. Now, some will hear this gospel we preach and think, well, (laughs) what good is that dusty old message about some crucified carpenter, okay? I can do way better than that. And when people do think in that way, we really shouldn't be very surprised. We also shouldn't be ashamed of the message either or try to change or improve upon it. As Paul says in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, like people like Esther and Mordecai, and also to the Greek, to the rest of the world. Look, church, when you, I, I remember we took a trip to D.C. about a year and a half ago, and I remember walking by the Supreme Court. And it was a week where I can't even remember the ruling, but there was some huge ruling that just came through and people were outside and they're walking around. And you just stand in front of this building. You think it's old and it's huge and it's ominous almost. And you just see, wow, there's power here in this building. Did you know that the words we're stitching together in this service are eternally more powerful than the Supreme Court of the United States? Isn't that incredible? A simple message that even a child could understand about a sinless God-man being crucified and resurrected to forgive our sins. To some, this gospel will seem lackluster and unimpressive. To some, what the church really needs is more money, more real estate, and a better marketing strategy. To some, the church will never be powerful until it's powerful in tangible, worldly ways again, but we should know better. We should know that God's power often doesn't seem nearly as great as it actually is. But it is found in the simple message of Christ and him crucified. It is found in fellowships like this where God's covenant people live together by faith in his son. And in, the mean, and in time, if we wait patiently and we live by faith together here in exile, then someday we will see the full extent of how powerful this God is truly is. Someday we will be certain, yes, we are his people, and yes, he has always been with us.